Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Good morning, church. We are, uh, long time no see, uh, we are going to uh, dwell in the passage of uh, Matthew 2 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab it in a moment. Uh, and if not, or uh, you may be new to exploring Christianity, we'll also display the words on the screen. I'm going to pray for us this morning before we open God's Word. Uh, so God, as we open these words in this story, these words that we have hung on to that have expressed what you have done in the world. May you open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, may you illuminate our minds to be able to receive every good gift and every good promise you have for us. God, may the distractions be small and may I get out of the way this morning as your message is proclaimed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. It is the season right now. Tis the season for a lot of different things. In my extended family, it is the season of Hallmark movies. If you have never ridden on the train of Hallmark movies, may I encourage you to never buy a ticket to this train wreck. I can testify to how much of a conversion process I go through when watching a Hallmark movie. I do it several times. I walk by the TV, I look at my spouse, and I say, I can't believe you're watching that cheesy mess. And then 10 minutes later, I'm cuddled up on the couch pleading to God, how could he leave her on Christmas Eve? It's a dark magic. It's an unexplainable phenomenon. The cinematography, average at best. The plot lines, flimsy as can be. The endings, predictable. And yet somehow, Hallmark Movie and Mystery Channels have announced just this month that they will be releasing 40, not 30, not 20, 40 of these bad boys all during the month of December. Now, if you find yourself in bewilderment about these movies like I do, there are other people, okay? There are support groups. There are bloggers who have actually written about why are these movies so trendy that they just kind of suck you into this shallow wonder and awe. One of them is Becky Nero, who writes this excellent blog of talking about how Hallmark movies have been able to capture this controlled formula that all of us want in one way or another. In one of her most circulated blogs, she identifies these key controlled variables that you will find in most Hallmark movies, or dare I say, any cheesy Christmas movies that make you just love them, okay? I'm going to give you seven today. All right, mostly because I'm just reeling that this is even a thing. But here are seven key characteristics that you will find in almost every Hallmark movie. Are we ready for this? 
This is a vocal one today, church. You got to be feeling it with me. You ready? Okay, here we go. Number one, everyone must be attractive. There are no plain people, no bad hair days. Even the friends of friends must at least be runners up in a beauty pageant. Okay, number two, family drama is always resolved. The tension will always exist, but by the time the tree is unwrapped, everything is good. Okay, number three, every man is a handy man. I will admit I felt this when I came to this church, but that's for another time. It's as if the only stores these men go to are Lowe's and Home Depot. Every male can at least build a perfect snowman, if not renovate a farmhouse that is at the gains standard. Okay, Number four, there must be a cliche moment with a cliche line. Let me give you a couple. Not that I did research or anything. Love requires a leap of faith. Someone said, yep. Mm -hmm. Sparks flew when I met you. I don't know about you, but love walks through the rain. I'm a little bit confused at this one. I don't know the power of this line. I will try it this week, and I will report back to you, see if it's powerful or not. All right, number five, there must be a trendy scarf. Apparently, there are 19 ways to tie a scarf, and most of them are embodied. Number six, the snow is never an inconvenience. No one gets wet. No one's worried if the electricity will run out. Apparently, they haven't lived here in Texas. Or no one is upset that there will be slush that will be tracked in on the carpets. And then number seven, high-power executives must travel to small towns. There are no massages. There are no counselors. There's no other way to relieve stress than to go to a small town to figure out your life. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> In other words, as Nero and many other people would say, one of the ways these movies try to convey to us this shallow sense of wonder and awe is through these controlled variables. Hallmark would even actually quote, if you got some of these, you've got a story of wonder on your hands. Because there's something attractive to us about predictable, calculated, safe, and controlled. This is the story that is rehearsed this time of the year. But followers of Jesus rehearse a very different story than what the culture may actually say. So last week we started this series called Wonderland, where we actually discussed that part of life with God is a life of wonder. But we have to define what we mean by wonder, because if not, we may think it's a wonder that's a hallmark type of wonder. And when you speak the name of Jesus, you're not messing with a controlled, safe story. When you enter the story of Jesus, you are entering a story that is not calculated, that is not predictable, that is not safe, that's not controlled. It is not a story of cliches, of snow, scarfs, 
and caroling and attractive people. It is a story, as matter of fact, that Matthew will say is of a small, complicated refugee family who is inconvenienced by the powers of this world. And Matthew today is going to highlight one of the people who are those powers of the world. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you now to turn to this passage in Matthew 2. I'm going to have the text on the screen as well. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, these astronomers, these Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? He saw his star when it rose, and they've come to worship him. Now, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Hold on to that. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When we reflect on accounts of Jesus' life like this, Matthew and other writers give us a cast of people. And one of the cast of people we're reminded of is Herod. When the people would actually read, the first hearers of this story would actually hear that it was during the time of King Herod. They would immediately know what setting had just arrived on the stage. Herod was known as Herod the Great. And things on the outside would look extremely great for Herod's rule. But anyone who knew the underneath story knew that Herod existed because he knew how to maneuver and be able to get his way through power. As one of the commentators said that I read this week, is that anyone living in the land knew that Herod looked like he ran the show, but Rome was always getting the dough. In essence, there was a force, a power behind Herod who was running it. And the people of God did not appreciate the rule of Herod. He called himself the king of the Jews, but he wasn't even looking out for the interest of the people of God. Herod's rule was marked by tension, power dynamics, and death. As it's been noted several times, and historians have said this, with Herod and his life, if anyone was a threat to Herod, Herod would take care of you. Herod's actually recorded of killing family members who could possibly be a threat. Matthew's going to tell us later on in this story that actually Herod hears word 
that there's a child that's born and he goes and he murders children. Not just children, but babies in the land of Bethlehem to make sure that he can control his rule. And when we think of Bethlehem being the place where Jesus was born, it is not the Bethlehem that your Hallmark card wants to give you. It is not a peaceful and quiet place. There's a writer by the name of Brian Zahn who actually he writes of different Christian ways of thinking of this reality. And he says, Bethlehem back in this day is the equivalent of what Bethlehem is today. Upon reflecting of his own visits to Bethlehem, he's talked about how you can walk through the city and you can experience this beautiful holiness. That there's this deep, rich history, this God-dripped experience of the town as you also kick around bullets and tear gas canisters as you walk through. This is the reality in which the story of Jesus happens. The story of Jesus doesn't happen in a snow globe. It does not happen in a time where things are controlled. It's not a fairy tale of escapism. This is a moment in history where bullets and beauty are intersecting together. In other words, it's a moment where the world is out of control. And Herod receives the news that he is not in control. This is the news of Jesus arriving in Herod's life and also in our life, that we are not in control. And here's how the prophet Micah is actually going to say it. Like This is a quote from an earlier prophetic text that he actually says, uh, from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, uh, by no means the least among the rulers, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd over the people. Herod is one of the first people to hear the story of Advent. The story that Jesus is arriving. And what's ironic about this is that you have these magi, these non-religious men coming to the king of the Jews and he's saying, hey, where is the Messiah? Herod doesn't know. He's with the people of God, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know that Jesus is arriving, and he doesn't know how Jesus is arriving. The Magi think that the people of God are aware and excited that Jesus is arriving. Can I say that's a word for us this morning, church? That it is not safe to assume that the people of God are prepared for the arrival of Jesus. This is actually why in history, Christians have actually designated a time to practice and remember this part of the gospel story that Jesus arrived. It was actually in the 4th and 5th century. There was a development in Christian worship to mark time, a four-week period to say that this is Advent. And Advent, if you're not familiar with the language like I emphasized last week, this is not a cultural trend, okay? This is not a new fad. Advent is this historical measure of time 
of identifying and rehearsing the return of Jesus. If you'd like just a definition of Advent, if you hear that word thrown around with people, it is the rehearsing, the arrival of Jesus. And it's not necessarily just reflecting on, oh, baby Jesus came. That is one aspect of it. But during the time of Advent, Christians wanted to make sure that they focused, that they recentered their lives towards the news that not just Jesus came, but that Jesus is coming. We remember how he came so we can be prepared to remember how he will return again. And in this waiting, one of the things that we are invited to do is simply ask ourselves, what is my reaction to Jesus returning to earth? What's my reaction to this news? In this story, you get two moments of reaction. You will choose one of these two ways of reaction. The first is this. The first reaction is a Herod type of reaction. That Herod, his posture is one upon hearing the news of Jesus. He moves towards control. Now, if you have a Bible open with you, I want to show you a couple places where this control is seen. The first one is going to be in chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed. There were others who were seeking. There were others who were excited. Herod is disturbed. And Matthew also lets you know the whole town is disturbed because Herod is disturbed. Meaning this is not a good type of disturbed. This is one that if Herod's worried, the rest of the town should be worried because he's reactive. The second one is in verse 7. Then Herod called to the Magi secretly and found out the exact time and place that the star had appeared. That Herod is working in secret to find where this baby will be. And then the next one is in literally the next verse over. In verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem because he wanted to worship him. If he wanted to worship him, why doesn't Herod go himself? Because he's disguising what the work is he's doing underneath. Herod is a posture of control. And when we hear the word control, now it gets all up in our business. Because Herod reveals just a little bit of what can be in you and I as well, right? That we can be defensive. That we can be manipulative. That we can be controlling. That we can be people who long for control. And if this is hard for you to imagine, I just want to recommend a couple of things. I, I want you to think about the last time that you got sick randomly. The last time you got stuck in traffic. The last time your kids did something you didn't want them to do. The last time bad weather set in. I want you to just take inventory of what was your reaction when this happened. Was it a, I welcome it. I welcome this right now. Or was it a reaction of being frustrated that you couldn't control this? When we feel out of control, our first instinct is to control something 
or someone. When we're in a place of control, we're meticulously looking at the diet. We're always taking the overtime to make a little bit more. We're always looking at where the stocks are moving. We're hovering over the kids every single day. We're making sure we respond to emails and send emails immediately back and forth. I appreciate the way that Jennifer Dukes actually defines in her book, All Under Control. She gives this really helpful down-to-earth definition of control. You know when you're in a place of control by when you're saying to yourself, I'm safer and more secure if I'm in charge. I'm safer and more secure when I'm in charge. And we will do crazy things, crazy things to have this feeling, right? Like she even notes in uh, her book, very good write. She, she writes, there have been studies that have been done uh, and she uses casinos as one of the examples. She says, when people roll the dice, if they want a small number, they'll roll the dice softly. And when people want a large number, they'll roll the dice aggressively, as if that changes anything. But she says, it's all about the feeling of when we are in control, we feel that we are safer and more secure. And if the Bible echoes one thing over and over to us, is that every time we try to grab for control, it tends to get worse. We think it helps, and it actually hurts us. We see this reality even in the first pages of Scripture, right? Humanity in the garden tries to take control, reaches for the fruit. And in reaching for the fruit, brokenness enters the world. Dr. Sharon Miller actually just gave me this insight a couple days ago that I thought was so helpful. She actually identifies that if you were to flip through the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament and New Testament, and look for the word control, it is sparse. And what is ironic is that every time you do see a word that's synonymously close to control, it's always associated with God. Not with people. Control is something we've added to our vocabulary. And it's almost as if the Bible is reminding us that God can do what God wants, but we cannot do what we always want to do. So we have a choice. We have the choice to be able to reach for control like Herod does and exhaust ourselves, try to control and manipulate situations, or we can surrender to a life of wonder. And wonder kind of looks like this, starting in verse 9. When they had heard, the Magi, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and he knelt down and he paid homage and opening their treasure chest, ooh, that's fun, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I want you to think about how outlandish this is, okay? 
If you were a Magi, you were well-educated, and most likely you were well-off to be able to travel. And just hear it for what it is. You've got these well-educated, well-off men going around following a star and a prophecy. That's what they're doing. And you literally just have to think to yourself, if this isn't wonder, I don't know what is. They haven't grown up around this story of God. They come to one of the most powerful leaders and they go, hey, we're looking for one of the most powerful people on the planet. Like how offensive is that? They give away a bunch of strangers to, or <laughs> they don't give away strangers. I want to clarify that, okay? They give away a bunch of treasure to strength. They give it to a baby. They don't even confirm this baby. And then they go a different route just because of a dream. A bunch of so-called wise guys seem to be off their rockers simply because they believe something has happened in heaven so they should respond on earth. This is the posture of wonder. And next week, we're actually going to come back and explore what does it mean to live in such a way that reflects this wonder. But what I want you to see today from this story is that there's two ways of living. And we choose to tend the first way. We want the way of control. That we want to control people and control our situations. But wonder is simply responding to the activity and movement of God. It's not trying to bank on your activity and movement in the world. Maybe a definition goes like this. We say that faith is trusting and believing in the things that are unseen. Most of the time, our default is control. We want to rely on what we can see and what we can do. Charles Spurgeon, who was this 1800s preacher, I mean, he preached a certain, it was spicy, okay? It was offensive what he said about this story. He looked people in the eye at one point, and he, go, he goes, the story of Herod hits us right between the eyes. And you know why? Because Herod basically does what most of us are looking to do in church. We want to hear a Bible study and then walk away and keep doing what we have been doing in our lives. We want to hear a Bible study and then we want to keep doing what we've always been doing. Here's the invitation. If you do not want to keep doing what you've been doing, if your life this season has been marked by certain amounts of control. Here's just a simple way to sum it up. It's literally just in this verse, in verse 12. If you want a life of wonder instead of a life of control, it's two things. One, it's recognizing that God's dream, God's preferred future, will happen no matter what we do. No matter who is in office, no matter what situation arises, no matter what obstacles come our way, God's dream in Jesus Christ will happen. That heaven and earth will come together. And then the second is this, that we go another route. That if our life is marked by control, we go another route. And the other route that I would recommend is we simply first start by naming what we want to control. 
that we don't leave it ambiguous, but we actually name it, right? Like, let me give an example of like how this is super relevant right now. All of us feel the frustration when you go to the doctor and the doctor just walks in and says, mm-hmm, something's wrong. Mm-hmm, it's broken. Mm-hmm, this is a problem. But there's no solution that's given to it, or at least naming what it is. We do the same thing with sin every time. We're like, mm-hmm, we're broken. Mm-hmm, there is a problem here. One of the steps of healing with Jesus is naming what that sin is. That naming that it is sin is the beginning, not the end. And then there's an invitation from the Holy Spirit for us to change our ways. Jesus offers us release from the powers that move us in a certain way. There's a lot of different ways to think about this, but I think Rich Velotis and his framework is the most helpful. When it comes to control, here's the three things to think of to invite the Holy Spirit to begin to transform in your life. And as we're about to come to the table in a moment, I'd recommend these are maybe three questions to sit in the presence of God with today. So it, to counter control is to be able to live a life that has nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and nothing to prove. Nothing to protect. Have you thought about what you go to great lengths to protect? Is it what type of parent you are? Is it your re reputation at work? Is it your family's legacy? Is there a weakness that you spend massive amounts of time trying to make sure that you compensate for in the world? Nothing to possess. Is there something when you wake up every day, you are on the hamster wheel of life trying to make sure you keep it? Is it the financial portfolio? Is it certain beliefs or politics? Is it a certain body image? And asking ourselves, what is the cost of me trying to possess and hold on to this reality? And then the third is, what do I go to great lengths to prove? Do you feel like you need to be the smartest person in the room? Do you need to remind people you are the funniest one in the room? Do you feel this agonizing sense of, I need to justify and prove that I believe in this thing, that I have salvation in it? These are just three different ways that control manifests in our lives. And we can invite the Holy Spirit to release us of this control because we have a story of one who came and defeated the powers that control us with this. If you're serving communion today, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to head to the back and grab the elements. In a moment, we're going to take a meal. And in this meal, we are taking the body of Jesus and we are taking the juice, which is the blood of Jesus. And in this meal, we're remembering that God came to earth and that this God, to bring his purposes, did not manipulate, that this God did not force, this God was not secretive in how he was going to do it, but he actually released control and walked through life 
And even the worst thing that could happen to him did happen to him. But because it did, because he was nailed on the cross, because he actually gave his life to be able to say, take your best shot at me in the powers of the world. This God defeated the powers through his death and then resurrected him to show that this God will deliver on his promise. In other words, in Jesus Christ, all of us come to the table today. In Jesus' name, you have nothing to protect. You have nothing to possess. And you have nothing to prove in his name. He will take care of us. And we can release control to him. Let's pray. So God, we come to you just praying and offering that our time here and our worship here is to recognize what you have done. Lord, for some of us, as we come to the table this week, our lives have been marked by control. We want control like what what our kids are doing with every step. We want to control what our future is going to look like. We want to control those who are around us. We want to control different situations. Jesus, by your body and your blood, can you help heal us? Can you help soothe us to slowly release that control? As we take this meal, Jesus, we're testifying that your dream will come true, that heaven and earth will meet, that there will be no more suffering and no more pain. May you remind us that you not just came, but you are coming again. And we'll hold on to that.